Hey everybody, it's Sarah. I just wanted to jump in before the episode and let you know we had some difficulties with the audio recording and there are some little clicks and noises that we weren't able to get out of the recording. We tried very hard. We are a work in progress still. We appreciate your patience and please enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach, Laurel Beversdorf, and physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Welcome to episode two of the Movement Logic Podcast. I am Dr. Sarah Court, physical therapist, and I am here with my co-host, Laurel Beversdorf, who is a strength coach and movement teacher. And today we are talking about scope of practice. What is it? Why does it matter? And how do we stay within it? Uh, Is it something that we understand naturally? Is it something that everyone follows the same way? What are the, the pros and cons of thinking about our work as movement teachers in terms of a scope of practice? And Laurel and I would definitely have some some different perspectives because we're coming at it from different uh, places, me as a PT and her as a strength coach and a movement teacher. Uh, Before we get into it, we just want you to know that while Laurel and I did decide on this topic for our conversation, we have not had this conversation before. Our dialogue is not scripted. It's really just us thinking out loud together, which is a, a great way to learn from one another. So... The question, Laurel, is what is scope of practice and why does it matter? I'm so glad you asked me that. (laughs) (laughs) I, I am a word person. I process things verbally. And so sometimes when I hear the question, like, what is scope of practice? I go, well, I use that phrase so much. And I think I know what my scope of practice is and isn't, but what actually, what is scope of practice? Like, what is the um, agreed upon definition. So, um, you know, not that the internet is, you know, only full of agreed upon definitions of things, but I think Wikipedia, <laughs> Wikipedia does a pretty good job of like, you know, crowdsourcing people's ideas of what things are and what I mean and what is true about them. So I looked up scope and this is what Wikipedia says. Scope of practice describes the procedures, actions, and processes that a healthcare practitioner is permitted to undertake in keeping with the terms of their professional license. It is limited to that which the law allows for specific education and experience and specific demonstrated competency. So when I read this from my perspective as a, as a you know strength coach, uh, yoga teacher, movement teacher, I see two things that make me go, Hmm. This is not the same for me. One is I am not a healthcare practitioner. And the second is I do not hold a professional license to teach yoga or to teach anything that I teach movement related. Um, because my industries that I work within are unregulated. So when I hear scope of practice, I think about it in the context of what yoga Alliance says about scope of practice. And we can talk more about that because I'm sure we're both going to be able to say a lot about yoga lines, but it's a little bit different in that what I need to understand about my scope of practice, I think first and foremost, is that I am not a healthcare provider. 
And so if I provide a service and, and the way I contextualize the service I'm providing is in some way um, hinting at that I somehow am a healthcare provider, I'm, I'm operating out of scope. In other words, if I assess, diagnose, or treat or say that I am assessing, diagnosing, or treating. And these, these, these seem obvious, but they can take kind of subtle form in the teaching practice. Assessment sometimes happens when teachers do hands-on adjustments, and then they get ideas about what it is that they're feeling. Or they look at a student's posture, and they decide that based on their postural you know, uniqueness, that there is some specific problem that underpins that postural uniqueness. Um, Diagnosing could be something along the lines of, oh, I think you're back because you have tight hamstrings. I've now diagnosed you with tight hamstrings, <laughs> or I've used tight hamstrings as a way to um, explain your low back pain. And then treating, right? So if I say, I'm going to um, help you um, overcome your low back pain by giving you these five postures that you will do twice a week, you know under my guidance. Um, these are all examples of me operating outside of scope, but I actually think there are other more subtle ways that yoga teachers can operate or, you know, strength coaches, Pilates teachers can operate outside of scope of practice that has less to do with, um, in some way insinuating that they are healthcare providers when they're not, but we're going to probably talk about all of that. So that's to answer your question. Yeah. Uh, so I am a healthcare practitioner you know, as a physical therapist, and we have a very clearly, very clearly outlined scope of practice. And in fact, each state has a slightly different one uh, that defines what physical therapists are and are not allowed to do as part of their practice. Uh, for example, I'm in California and in California, physical therapists are not allowed to do dry needling, which is the sort of westernized version of acupuncture. Uh, but in some other states, they are. And, uh, you know, another one that, that I remember kind of jumped out because we learned all about it in, in school. Uh, we're not allowed to give dietetic or nutritional advice to our patients because that's considered something that's out of the scope of what we do. Um, even though a lot of us have a personal interest in nutrition and may know quite a bit about it, but we're not supposed to sit down and uh, counsel our patients beyond the, beyond something like you may benefit from seeing a nutritional specialist or something like that. Um, what is interestingly included is uh, not that we can position ourselves as psychotherapists or psychologists, but the, the definition of our job actually does include the, this, the mental health, the psychic state, if you will, of our patients. So we are allowed to kind of dip a toe into that um, as long as we're obviously, you know, very clearly not providing, you know, uh, uh, I was about to call it mental therapy. <laughs> Treatment. You're not treating that. We're not treating them, but we might uh, shine a light on, on how, you know, a particular aspect of their, their mental health may be impacting their physical health, for example. Um, so it's not ambiguous at all, but there's also like, I have a license and I, can get it taken away from me. And if my license is, if I, if I step outside the scope of practice or I've stepped outside the code of ethics, and if my license is taken away from me, I can no longer practice as a PT in that state. So it is, uh, the stakes are, are much, much higher um, 
to that end, right? Because you literally cannot do it if you get your license taken away. Right. And the cost of becoming a PT is also much, much higher. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. And it takes a much longer time. <laughs> Did you go to school for more than 200 hours, Sarah? Did I go to school for more than 200? Oh, that you're for, joking. For I was like, uh, <laughs> over three years. Yes. 93 right. exams. Yes. Um, right. And so, yeah. yes. I mean, the other thing that I was thinking about, I do want to hear what you were talking about as far as, you know, a more and uh, less clearly defined as opposed to, you know, the sort of assess, diagnose, treat ways that, uh, yoga or Pilates teachers kind of find themselves outside of the scope of practice. Um, one of the things that I sort of think about is this idea of like a macro st- uh, scope of practice versus a micro scope of practice, macro being like something like for me, which is defined from the top down to everybody uh, and something like a micro kind of a pra- uh, scope of practice, which is sort of your personal sense of this is beyond what I know how to do. This is going into territory that I don't think is appropriate for me. And maybe this patient, this uh, student just doesn't know it, you know, things like that. Um, so what do you, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. The microscope of practice is to me, what I am competent and qualified to teach within the realms of movement. And so when I try to explain what I do, maybe on a kind of a meta level, so I don't know if this is what I would say to like a regular student who asked what I do, but I think what I would say that I do is I teach people how to understand their bodies through movement, or I teach people how to move so that they can understand, appreciate, enjoy, feel better in their bodies. Um, and even though the, the services that I provide might actually, in in some cases, I've even had students tell me that they outperform the services provided by their PT. In other words, that they, they, they feel like they feel better after practicing to the classes that I offer than they do from, you know, the exercise of particular treatments that they were given by their PT. That doesn't necessarily, in fact, that doesn't at all mean that what I'm offering is therapy. Um, what I am offering though, are, are ways that students can, um, condition their bodies and create changes within their bodies. And so that can include things like the asana practice, which is passive and active stretching. Um, it can include things like kettlebell, uh, training. It can include things like lifting weights. And even though those are not all within the scope of practice of a yoga teacher, they are within the scope of of the other modalities that I teach self-massage, for example, and the microscope is, it comes into play with I mean, I think there's a lot of things that make me qualified and competent to teach those modalities, not least of which is that I've been teaching those modalities, but that's kind of putting the cart before the horse. It's sort of the paradox, which is that oftentimes we become more competent and capable of working within our chosen scope of practice by operating within that scope of practice. Um, And so we all have to start somewhere, but additionally, personal practice and also, um, you know, work that I've done with other more experienced people along the way, certifications surely can be a good place to start. Trainings can be a good place to start, but I have to ask myself before I teach certain new things, like, you know, even now, like when I want to teach a new move, for example, in kettlebells, or if I want to, um, work a particularly challenging yoga posture in a class in a particular way, in a new way that I haven't before, 
the question I have to ask myself is like, am I fully prepared to offer this in a, in a way that's reasonably safe? And, and also have I, um, have I, have I created like this opportunity for students to opt out? Right. So that like, if what I'm presenting to them, um, doesn't seem safe to them or doesn't seem even maybe useful to them, have, have I offered them alternatives beyond that? Um, and so that's the microscope that I look at. And so microscope. I like it. You Whoa. Said it and I was just like, I'm going to let her keep you Whoa, calling it microscope. The microscope really like and the yeah. macroscope. So the macroscope right. is I don't, I don't, I don't assess, treat or diagnose, right. Yeah. You know, or assess, diagnose, treat, but the microscope is that I am every step of the way along my journey of improving my skill as a yoga teacher, as a strength coach, as a kettlebell specialist, being self-critical of my own ability to do that competently and safely. And if I don't feel that I'm competent and safe in my ability to provide some type of movement scenario or experience for students, I look for the opportunities that I can find to become competent and to learn about how to minimize the risks. So the longer longer we're at this, I think the more, if we are being self-critical and if we are investing in our own continuing education, if we have a practice, right? I think that the wider our scope can get. That's the very first class I ever taught had two people in it. Thank God, because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. You know, like we're always, hopefully improving our, our skill just by the very act of, of doing the job. Um, but then what I found is sort of like, ironically, as, as I got better as a yoga teacher, as I did more certification, as I learned more, I would have more and more people come to me. This is before I was a physical therapist and, and it would be like, you know, oh, this person has Parkinson's disease. Can you do yoga? I, I was thinking about when I first became a yoga teacher and the, with them and, or like, I just had a hip replacement. Can you help me after my hip replacement? And, you know, it, it sort of, it puts you in that a bit of a quandary position, because if you're just a movement, ju- not just, but if you're, if you are outside of a, a healthcare professional um, uh, scope of practice, there's nothing, there's no reason why you can't, because there's no, mm-hmm. there's nothing that says you cannot do this or you can't teach mm-hmm. yoga anymore. That's the, the gift and the problem, I think of an unregulated industry. Um, mm-hmm. But it also becomes a question of the me taking my own microscope and saying to myself, do I legitimately possess the skill set that this person needs right now? Or right. am I close enough to it that I can, with some study and with some, you know, talking to people who know more about this than I do and, and you know, I, it's, is this a, like a 10% stretch for me to work with this person? Or is this a 75% stretch for me to work with this person? And, you know, I'll say at the time, I've, the ones that felt like the 10% stretch, I just sort of went for and yeah. things turned out okay. And, uh, but what I would always do is say very, very clearly, I am a yoga teacher. I am not a physical therapist this is, we're going to be doing movement stuff, you know, just making sure that the person knew that, that I was not there in a position that I, that I did not hold at that time. But I think that is, I think that is what gets harder for people as they become more skilled, you know, the, your, you know, your cousin's nephew's brother refers you to their friend who's got back pain, you know, and somebody told them they should do some yoga. Like you must've had some people 
ask you for private sessions where you where you maybe had a pause and were like, I don't know if this is quite within or if I know enough about this condition or things like that. I still do. And so I still do every single time. And it's the same, it's the same feeling, but now what I think I've gained over the years is an understanding that my first job is to actually reorient the person's expectations that I'm going to be meeting with so that it's very clear. Like you just said, what my job is, what I'm showing up to do and what I'm not showing up to do. And, and so when I would, for example, get an offer to work with somebody with a very specific diagnosed condition. So in the beginning, my first question would have been, have you seen a doctor? Because that's what I was taught to ask when they come up to me with a very specific request for help for a very specific problem that they were having. And uh, I don't actually know how, <laughs> I don't, I think that was a cop-out question, honestly, for two reasons. It's One, kind of a cover your ass question. I think, I think there are better questions that I could have asked first. And two, like, because of the state of healthcare in this country, it's, it's kind of, it's almost kind of a cruel question to, for some folks to be asked, like, have you seen a doctor when they actually don't have health insurance? Um, and seeing a doctor would like, you know, be a financial hardship. Or they so, have seen a doctor and it was not helpful. Right. Or, or, or they, or they did see a doctor, but there was no specific diagnosis because there's no actual specific biological um, problem underpinning their pain. Right. right. Um, which is very common with pain. So I think my, the way I respond now, and now it's usually emails, right. Where someone will email me about a very specific problem and I will actually explain to them what I can do. I won't talk as much about what I can't do because basically I think they understand that I'm a movement teacher, but I really reiterate and reinforce what I can do. And it usually goes something like, well, I'm happy to meet with you. This will be largely a dialogue about what seems to be helpful for you to do movement wise and what seems to be less helpful for you to do movement wise. And then based on what I notice about how you move and based on that background information that you've given me. I will be able to suggest potentially other ways of moving that will help you feel better and help you maybe, um, you know, if you do have some type of movement pattern that is showing up in your life that feels less helpful, maybe we can work on um, honing a, a, you know, a different pattern or just working on building some capacity around that area, like strength, for example, or, um, you know, engaging in novel movement practices that might, um, actually be helpful for your particular, um, level of sensitivity around an area of your body. And, and so things like that, or, or maybe, maybe what I'm doing, you know, when I'm working with these people is really just helping them take their mind off of what's going on in their life and de-stress and relax and learn something which is enjoyable inherently in and of itself. And so I, I try to convey all of this to them. And I also say like, if you're working with me one-on-one, -on -one, it's largely going to be a, a dialogue where I'm constantly checking with you and asking you how things are feeling in the moment. Sure. A couple of times, but really like the next day, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to email you and ask you how, how, how things are going. So I actually, I think it's pretty simple, honestly, as long as people understand what I can do, they don't necessarily need to know what I can't do. 
right? So I don't need to tell them that like, I can't diagnose treat. It's like, I think they kind of know that they're coming to me for help because they get this idea that I might be able to help them within the scope that I operate. So then I can just tell them kind of how that's going to go. And then if I somehow notice, or they tell me that it's not getting better and we come up against a, you know, a situation where it doesn't seem like the services I'm providing are, are helpful. Then that's when, of course, we would look for, uh, you know, another, another, uh, person or another modality or, or something else that would potentially be more helpful to them. So, yeah, that's something we do in the PT world a lot. Like I have other PTs who PT that I know very well, who's a pelvic floor specialist who refers people to me all the time because she's like, this person needs your skill set before they, before my skill set can be effective for them. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember um, there was a, a yoga teacher who wanted me to sit in on a session where she was working with a client of hers who had shoulder pain and like mm-hmm. help her, maybe give her some ideas for things. And I was like, sure, no problem. So I showed up and I'm watching this woman and the way that her client was moving, there were some very clear signs uh, that point to someone having Parkinson's disease which mm-hmm. is something that I learned in PT school. That was not something I ever learned. You know, we, we learned to screen for, for different conditions. Uh, and I started asking her some of the questions that you can ask people that are very, very odd questions. Mm-hmm. Um, like, are you constipated? Which is a weird question to ask someone with shoulder pain, but in the, in the you know, s- world of, of uh, Parkinson's, it's not that uncommon. And I didn't know if this woman knew that she did and just hadn't told the yoga teacher or, so I just kind of just shut my, I didn't say anything about it at the time, but afterwards I, I emailed the teacher and I was like, this is what I saw and this is what I think. And it turned out that she did, you know, ha, as it turned, mm. she was early stage Parkinson's disease. And, and, you know, that's the kind of thing where this is not, this now is, is well out of the scope of, um, not that a yoga teacher or a movement teacher couldn't help someone feel good with, with, mm a chronic degenerative neuromuscular disease. Um, mm-hmm. But there are just specific things that you learn how to do because those are the populations that you're working with. You know, we, we're working right. with people sometimes with really serious conditions. And, yeah. you know, that's something where it would be disingenuous of me to, 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 as a movement teacher, be like, oh, I'm totally going to help you get your, you know, rotation back when I really have no idea if that's even a possibility. Right. So it it is important, I think for all of us. And, and even in my work as a PT, there's times when I'm like, I am not getting this person better and I'm doing everything I know how to do. So that means we need to step back. And, um, you know, from my perspective, it's something like, let's, let's get an MRI of your shoulder and see what's actually going on. And, and more often than not, something's like way more severe than we thought it was to begin with. And it mm-hmm. may not change what I'm doing treatment wise, but it changes expectations around the process of healing and how long it's going to take, you know, which is actually mm-hmm. a very useful thing from my perspective for the patient to know. This episode is brought to you by the Movement Logic Foot and Ankle Tutorial. Our feet and ankles are a pretty complicated bunch of joints that we tend to pay little attention to until they hurt. But with the proper care, we can recover from injury or prevent future injuries from taking place. 
If you or your students have foot pain, or you simply want more ideas for functional and progressive movements to maintain healthy ankle, foot, and toe mobility and strength, the Movement Logic Foot and Ankle Tutorial is for you. We'll help you better understand how the foot and ankle integrates with the leg, hips, and even the neck. We'll teach you exercises that explore supination and pronation, arch support and development, balance and proprioception, and how they all contribute to the mechanics of walking. And we'll explain why old beliefs incorrectly emphasize position over function. Physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Court, yoga teacher and strength coach, Laurel Beversdorf, and Pilates teacher, Anula Myberg, have created this foot and ankle tutorial to help you better understand and connect to your feet and ankles and improve your overall function and health. Click the link in the show notes to learn more and to purchase. I don't think there are any pitfalls or negatives to having a scope of practice, but do you think there are, do you think there, there's, uh, any reason why, you know, the, the, the yoga Alliance obviously created a scope of practice. Um, do you think there's any sort of negative around that being an, uh, well, based on my reading of it? No, I, I really, I think it's quite reasonable. Yeah. Um, you know, it, like I, I, again, because I'm a word person, I wanted to, I wanted to see, you know, like kind of take in what the language they're using around scope of practice and a couple of their principles stood out. One was um, members must limit teaching to practice and learning that aligns with yoga philosophy, the uh, lineage style and methodology for which the member is qualified and in accordance with the competencies described in its common curriculum standards, which do. So it, it seems like, you know, in other words, like if you're presenting yourself as a yoga teacher, do your teachings align with the philosophy of yoga? I think that the weakness there is that that's really open to interpretation. It's yeah. really unspecific, especially since we all have <laughs> our own idea of what yoga philosophy, um, you know, how, how it translates with regards to teaching, yeah. teaching asana specifically. Um, and then, um, you know, the lineage and style that, that you are qualified to teach. I, I do think that is a little limiting in the sense that like, if I were trained to teach in the Iyengar lineage, but then, um, I decide to move beyond teaching Iyengar yoga, but I don't then take a 200 hour or 300 hour teaching that is presented exclusively through a particular lineage. And I start kind of changing the Iyengar practice and maybe adding and subtracting things from it, according to my practices with other teachers and other practice communities. Am I operating out of scope? I think lineage is, is potentially a sticky word there. What, yeah. what does that mean? What does yeah. lineage actually mean? Um, and, and, but then methodology is also included in some methodology is just really, really broad again. So then we can go, well, <laughs> this teacher that I practice with regularly <laughs> uses this prop methodology. And so, you know, a, a lot of teaching yoga is, uh, apprenticeship, uh, based, which, you know, is actually one of the best learning models, according to, uh, learning experts, um, that you can have. My hus uh, husband is an assistant professor of English education and, you know, talks and thinks a lot about learning and how we learn and how we teach and what's the best way to actually 
help people understand and know something. And like, it turns out that apprenticing is, is really high up there. And so when you practice with other teachers who, you know, have more skills than you do and have a particularly, what seems like an effective way for, for transmitting those skills, um, I would say that taking that understanding and information in and, and letting it come through your teaching is also operating within scope of practice. If you feel again on that microscope competent, you've been, you've been sitting with and practicing that stuff for long enough to feel competent to share it then with, with the students in front of you. I want to jump in here quickly because that actually completely lines up with the medical model of learning, which is see one, do one, teach one, right? So you watch your senior you know, surgeon do an appendectomy and then you do an appendectomy and then you teach someone else how to do an appendectomy. And that's considered like when you're able to teach it to someone else, it means you actually know what you're doing. Um, but I really love it. It has that apprenticeship quality to it and makes a lot mm. of sense. Um, mm. I think the other thing that happens is when we get into, I mean, full disclosure, first of all, I was on the advisory committee when Yoga Alliance was creating their scope of practice. So I had a very small amount of something to do with this document, um, not a lot. Uh, but um, the other thing that I think comes up that's kind of jumped out to me is that I'm sure, I'm assuming that Yoga Alliance really feels that they can only talk to describing yoga in a, in a sort of traditional sense, but so many people mm -hmm. are teaching classes now that pull in other things like resistance bands or weights or massage mm -hmm. therapy or all of these other uh, tools that are not, you know, certainly wasn't in my yoga, my 200 hour teacher training. And um, not that there is, I mean, maybe there are teacher trainings for, for using resistance bands, but I'm not, I'm not aware of any, but it is that thing where you are. Oh, I've, I've taught, I've taught one. Hi. Oh, sorry. <laughs> An actual, like a teacher training? Yeah. I didn't know it was a teacher. Yeah. Oh, sorry. And then the pandemic, and then the pandemic struck, but apparently oh. I'm teaching another one soon. So. Oh, nice. I <laughs> didn't realize, I knew you did a lot with it. I didn't know you were you taught a, a training, but, yeah, um, but it, this is a, this is, this would be an interesting story about scope of practice. Yeah. Because yeah. how, how, how am I qualified to teach a teacher training? Right. On right. resistance bands. Where did According. I learn to use resistance bands? Right. According to who? And, and this is yeah. the other thing with the, the yoga alliance is that, you know, it's not a governing board. They don't take your teaching license. You don't have a teaching license, so they can't do right. anything, right. right? They can't come along and be like, well, you can't teach that because it's not in your, I mean, they can say whatever they want, but right. they can't actually stop you. I think the biggest hold that yoga alliance has over teachers is being able to remove their name from the registry, which will um, potentially create a problem for a teacher's career when they then want to be uh, a teacher trainer for a 200 hour and 300 hour teacher training, but they are not a registered teacher with Yoga Alliance. And I think that that right there is, is kind of the crux of the issue with why people are not on board with Yoga Alliance is that they do have some hold over teachers in the sense that they can take their name off the registry. That's it though. They can't prevent them from teaching, you know? No. And, and I think the other part is, you know, most teacher trainings want to be yoga Alliance teacher trainings. So if you are a yoga studio or a person who is holding a, a teacher training, that's, that's has some cachet. Um, but I do remember at the time when that scope of practice came out, uh, there was a very upset corner of the yoga teacher world and, and um, 
<laughs> I, I don't remember who it was exactly, but they created a, a Facebook group and added me and several of the other people who were on the advisory board to the group and then basically said, explain yourselves. And um, <laughs> I bet I'm, that one I'm, felt really good. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I don't <laughs> respond well to a lot of things, so I certainly didn't respond well to that. <laughs> Um, what I did was just not respond. And I took myself out of the group because I was like, if you open your mouth, Sarah, you're going to say some things that you really, there's no reason, but right. ultimately, I mean, you know, it's, it's this idea of, I, I think that the microscope idea is the most useful thing to not only movement teachers and yoga teachers, but to anyone like hmm. in the world of PT, we take continuing education courses. We train in different modalities and, you know, just because I went to this weekend training, does it mean I can turn around and apply everything I learned the following week? Probably not. Mm -hmm. I probably have mm -hmm. to slowly start to integrate some of that material, but I also rely on my own microscope to know mm -hmm. that I need to practice this a whole bunch, or I need to work on this a yeah. lot before I unleash it on somebody who's like actually a patient who is paying, who is in pain, any of those things. Right. Right. I think that it can also work the other way where people, um, people don't feel ready when in actuality they one are ready and two won't ever feel ready until they start applying what they've learned. Right. And so when we look at ourselves under the microscope, some of us look with a little too much confidence. I just <laughs> finished my weekend certification and whatever neurodynamic yoga moves or whatever it Balloon is. Balloon animals. Yeah. And now, and now I'm ready because I'm certified. Right. And and then there are people who are maybe a little bit self-critical and are cautious to a point, but then feel like, okay, I think, yes, I can reasonably apply these like more basic things in the moment and then take it from there. And then other people are just like, nope, not ready yet. Haven't read enough books, haven't taken enough classes. And, you know, I think that it, these, these levels of confidence and humility or um, exist, they exist on a spectrum. I, I definitely feel like I was a little bit overconfident in the beginning and now I almost feel like it's the opposite where I feel less confident because of the fact that I, I think I know more yes. about what I don't know. Yes. It's always like the more, you know, the more you realize how much you don't actually know. Yeah. But it um, doesn't prevent me from, it doesn't prevent me from getting started though. And so right. that's always my advice to new teachers is like, you have to find a way to get started. Yeah. You have to find one thing that you can start applying because right. If you never get started, you, you will never feel ready. Yeah. And I think the longer you wait, that was something that was kind of driven home in my teacher training. If you, they were like, as soon as you get done with this training, you need to turn around and just start doing something. Teach your friends, teach your mm -hmm. church group, you know, yeah. self-practice, talk out loud and teach yourself because you have to start using it to make it something that, that you can do for sure. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I mean this is a, this is off topic, but it's the sort of ignorance is bliss idea. Like I am learning how to ride a motorcycle and I, it's super fun, but I know nothing. I don't know anything about what I'm doing. So I'm getting some coaching. And, and there was one moment where I had, I had done, I did the whole thing that I was supposed to like started. I went and I was so happy and I'd stopped the motorcycle 
And I turned around to look at my, who was coaching me behind me. And I accidentally like revved the throttle with my hand because I wasn't thinking about my hand. Uh, and then I like, was like, ah, and like turned back around and I could hear him yelling at me like clutch, clutch. And I, I was like, well, it's, I mean, not that bad. I just pull a clutch in and whatever. Um, and he came running over and he was like shaking because he knew what I would had like missed by two seconds, which was the bike flying out from underneath me and me oh. lying onto my ass. Right. But I didn't know. I was like, why is he panicking so much? I just accidentally revved the thing, whatever, you know? So it's like, the, he knew, he knew enough to be scared right in that moment. And yeah. I knew nothing. I was like, whoopsies. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> we all start out a little more, a little too whoopsies, I think maybe. And, and benefit from yeah. the, the wisdom that practice gives us. Isn't ignorance is bliss just another way of saying Dunning-Kruger effect? Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's like, if I don't know what I don't know, I can feel really, really feel good really about good what about I it. I feel know. really smart because I know all of the things. I know all the things there are to know. All yeah, right. So Oops. I want to actually, I wanted to just like, um, you know, give this example in kind of another way, which is that um, when I did my 200 hour and 300 hour yoga teacher training, I was assessed by trainers who I respected and learned a lot from, but I don't know that they were as capable of assessing my ability to teach yoga, given the constraints of the assessment process, which, you know, as we probably all have recognized in some way or another, oftentimes what gets assessed is what's easy to assess and not what's important. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when they assessed me, it was easy to assess my ability to teach a room of my peers for seven minutes. And it was easy to assess a multiple choice test. And it was easy to assess a long answer test. And based on the fact that I passed those assessments, by the way, I had no idea what their criteria was. None of us really did. But as long as I passed their tests, according to them, I was deemed qualified by, you know, this particular certification program. Now with uh, 15 years of teaching under my belt. How do I know I'm qualified to teach yoga with resistance bands? Well, <laughs> I know, I know myself as a teacher, I've taught a lot. I've learned a lot about what works and what doesn't. And I spent a lot of time practicing with the resistance bands, which by the way, actually do present their own risks. I mean, they're elastic that can snap and like shoot at your face at any second. If you, if you hold them, you know, incorrectly. And, and, and so you know, this idea of the microscope is, is actually really important because 200 hour and 300 hour certifications do not equal competency. Yeah. Right. And either, by the way, do 15 years of experience, right? It depends. It yeah. depends on what we're trying to do. And so we got to look at, you know, where we are in that process, who we're teaching in that process and where we want to be. And it's a step-by-step game. Absolutely. Uh, a note to our listeners, you can check out the show notes for any references we might have mentioned in this podcast. You can also visit our Movement Logic website where you can get on our mailing list to be in the know about sales on our tutorials. The uncut version of this episode, if you want to watch the video version and see what our faces look like, uh, is also on our website, movementlogictutorials.com forward slash podcast. And finally, it really helps if you like the episode. It really, really helps us if you subscribe uh, as well as rate and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week with some more uh, strong opinions, very loosely, very loosely held. 
that we're loose or anything. Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm leaving that in. Strong I'm leaving that in. and loose. <laughs> I'm leaving that in.